Before we start, a quick reminder, the new season crowdfunding campaign ends tonight, like in just a few hours after I'm posting this episode. If you're very quick, you can still pledge your support to the 9pm Winter Series 2022. We've we've roared past Target 2. Can we reach Target 3? You have until 9pm tonight, Thursday the 26th of May, Sydney time. Go to the 9pmedict.com slash winter 2022. Go on, do it. The following episode of the 9pm Edict contains politics, strong language, adult themes, and a glimmer of hope. Okay. Thank you. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. It's Thursday, the 26th of May, 2022. Welcome to the 9pm election unhinging, the aftermath. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. And I say to my fellow Australians, thank you for this extraordinary honour. Tonight, the Australian people have voted for change. I am humbled by this victory, and I'm honoured to be given the opportunity to serve as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. Well, here we are then. If you uh, go to the podcast webpage, you'll see that I've I posted a photo which for me kind of summarises my personal reaction at the moment. It's it's a screenshot from 10 News and it shows the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and the new Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong, standing at the top steps uh, of the, the steps up to boarding the Royal Australian Air Force jet on Monday on their way to Japan to take part in the Quad meeting. And for me, it is a photograph that is is filled both with hope and hesitation. Hope, it's it's quite a, a bright morning. They're there, they're smiling, they're looking confident. It represents change. And certainly the idea that straight out there from day one, they're representing Australia on the world stage. We're not being insular. We're a new Australia and we're taking it to the world. And that's a good thing. And yet at the same time, it's it's an overcast, it's a, an overcast morning in Canberra. Um, there's a little bit of hesitation there. We're not sure. And I, I think that, uh, what is it now, Thursday, five days after the election, three days after that that initial ministry was sworn in, 
Yeah, it, it feels a bit better, but where's it going to go? In The Guardian, um, Anna Spago Ryan wrote a lovely piece. Of course, I have linked to it. The headline, after the election, I feel something new, a tiny brightness between hope and relief. Year after year, she writes, we watch people who won't be here make decisions on our behalf about the burning planet we will inherit. Uh, She's a millennial, you see. And then we get up the next morning and read some memes and laugh so we forget to think about deforestation. Therapists, uh, she says a little later, if we can find an appointment, help us to ignore how awful everything is and keep going anyway. The media we consume is designed to distract and divert us, watching the same comfort TV, immersed in virtual worlds, swapping tiles on mobile games, tweeting until our internet gets shut off, so we can cope just well enough to stop plummeting into existential grief. I think a lot of us have known that feeling, right? But waking up on Sunday morning, writes Anna, still in a wondrous stupor slash chocolate hangover after election night, I felt something new, a tiny brightness, a feeling sitting somewhere between hope and relief. As I say, that's that's kind of where I am at the moment. I did listen to uh, Albanese's first proper press conference on Monday after he'd been sworn in. And uh, this little bit caught my attention. I look forward to uh, leading a government that makes Australians proud, a government that doesn't seek to divide, that doesn't seek to have wedges, but seeks to bring people together for our common interest and our common purpose. I think that's one of the messages that came through on Saturday. People do have conflict fatigue. They want to work with people, and I'll work with people, whether it's the crossbenchers or the opposition, uh, to try to, wherever possible, uh, get agreement. It's the way that I ran the Labor Party from the day that I became Labor leader, not opposition leader. And I do believe uh, that we can do politics better and I hope to do so. Happy to take just a few questions. It's an interesting statement about collaboration and, and cooperation and consensus and so on. It's something I don't think we've heard, I mean, not genuinely in Australian politics for, for quite a few years. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that Bob Hawke used to run his cabinet like that and so on. The idea that the Prime Minister is not an elected dictator is something I think we're going to have to get used to. It's certainly something that the uh, the journalists who cover politics are going to get used to, as, as, I'll, as I'll come back to a little later in this episode. I am feeling exhausted, however. There was a lot of tension in the lead-up to the election. I don't think the nation realised how, how tense it was, probably on, on both sides politics, all sides of politics, I should say, because I don't really like that that one-dimensional, literally one-dimensional left-right thing. But now it's got to happen. It's all well and good to win an election. Now uh, it actually has to be done. And after a, a government that was extremely good at announcing things and extremely shit at actually achieving them, 
a little cautious. I'm also just, as I say, really tired. Um, maybe it's just that tiredness of relief because the beating has finally stopped. Or maybe in my case it's just post-COVID syndrome. It's been around a few days. I guess we'll soon see. This will be the final of the election-themed podcasts. Uh, We return to normal soon. There will be the occasional one, which I run solo, where I talk about a wide range of things. And there will be the special guest episodes where I um, have a special guest and we talk about various things depending on the guest. But in this uh, election mini-series, this slot has been my reporting whinge of the week. And... Quite frankly, I have three whinges this time to wrap up the election season. And the first one is this whole concept of the narrative. Well, let me bring in Tanya, because um, when you look at the coalition's result, that should be a you know landslide basically for Labor, but it's not because there's so many others and Greens. So I guess the question for you is, what has Labor done wrong that it hasn't been a landslide for you? Uh, I don't... I don't know that you can draw conclusions about what we've done wrong when we are obviously the party that is most likely to be able to form government. Yeah, but it's not decisive. And a win is a win is a win. And <laughs> that is true. On 31.7% yeah. in every state except for WA. You less, less than a third no, of Australians have voted for you. Particularly mm. in this environment where around the world people are worried about change. They've, we've been through the pandemic. There's you know economic insecurity. Uh, it, I think... I'm focused on what we've done right because that's looking very good to me. That's Tanya Plibersek, uh, member for Sydney, um, talking back to Lee Sales on on the election night, saying, "Look, we actually won. What's this thing about? We got it wrong." Jenny Hocking, uh, an academic, wrote an interesting piece saying that that was, and I quote. The question that encapsulated the poverty of political journalism over the last three years, which reached its nadir during this election campaign. She says Barry Cassidy called out this bizarre, as he called it, election night reporting. The reluctance to acknowledge Labor's victory and the focus on Liberal Party failure and the rise of the the Teal independents Rather than Labor's success, uh, to quote Cassidy, there's barely any mention that we have a new government. Instead, the loss of one particular seat, we're back to Jenny Hocking now, this is Labor's candidate Christina Keneally uh, losing the seat of Fowler to independent Di Lee, um, that was taken to reflect the failure of an entire party despite the fact that they won. It left no room for acknowledging, says Jenny Hocking, uh, either that Labor ran a discipline-focused campaign or its key policy differences in areas that mattered most to the voters, uh, such as cost of living, childcare, free TAFE, climate change, aged care, healthcare and committing to the Uluru Statement from the heart, are actually things. In Mianjin, Tim Dunlop kind of picked up this theme too. He said 
The mainstream media's coverage of the 2022 federal election has been a disgrace to the profession of journalism and a stain on our democracy. He's picked up that whole, uh, what he calls a toxic codependent relationship uh, between the journalists and, and the politicians relying on each other for mutual support. Now, obviously, this isn't all journalists, but it is to a very great extent the press gallery mode, isn't it? It's the culture of drops and strategic leaks, the creation of hierarchies uh, where politicians favour some journalists and cancel others. Uh, Tim Tim Dunlop says that's a cancer on our democracy. And that codependency and symbiosis are the key reasons reform's so difficult because the uh, the system actually works quite well for the droppers and droppees, for the media and the politicians. It's only us poor mug citizens who are left short-changed. Now, he writes that we need a new Voices of Journalism movement led by the journalists themselves. I'm not quite sure how that will work when... Some journalists are the actual problem. Uh, it obviously needs to include audience as well. Anyway, that's in Mianjin. Have a look at that. Uh, disclosure, Mianjin's a client of mine. Um, certainly something needs to be done. Uh, and that gets to me to my second whinge, which is the refusal, I mean, almost the denial of, uh, by rather, some anti-Labor commentators that, they actually got a lot of things wrong. Like, here's <laughs> Joe Hildebrand. All right. But here he is writing for Sky News uh, on the 18th of May, so three days before the election. And he says, For all the millions of dollars ploughed into this campaign by billionaire heir Simon Holmes, a court and other wealthy donors, the Teals may not actually win a single seat. And he talks uh, about... Um, you know, really how they're, they're not going to win. There's going to be none of them, I mean, which is totally wrong. He refers to it again as a multi-million dollar vanity project of self-appointed climate crusaders in the wealthiest suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney. You know, I'm looking, looking you know, putting aside the chip-on-the-shoulder attitude there. Oh, well, those people have money. They funded the campaign while writing for a Murdoch news outlet which is perhaps the vanity media project uh, sin qua non, if I can use Latin for a bit. And he then then has the nerve to talk about how there, there are people living with just $29 a day to live on after paying for their housing. And, and I think, mate, what the, what the fuck have you done about that? How, what writing have you done about that? in the last three years. Anyway, he's totally wrong. I mean, you know, he thinks the Teals might have won one, probably won't win any, because he's been leaked some private polling. Very rarely does anyone go back and look at what commentators have said and predicted and then kind of rated the accuracy of their bullshit. It's the kind of thing that, that student journalism students sometimes do, of course, and media studies students, but the outlets themselves seem to be happy with people saying any old crap which turns out to be rubbish as long as they say it in an entertaining way. A bit like, a bit like this podcast, really. And even then, <laughs> entertaining. Which brings me to the third point, 
the third gripe, the lame caricatures. Dave Ruby Ching, who's uh, Dreary Clocks on Twitter, said, uh, I hope everyone's ready for the Albo is Harry Potter and Dutton is Voldemort discourse and memes. And we have had the Voldemort. Yeah. We're too late, I'm afraid. The West Australian the other day, front page, has a very badly drawn picture of, quite frankly, I don't know who the illustrator is, but really, of um, of Dutton as Voldemort. And I think he's trying to imply that's that's Albanese's Harry Potter, except it's then labelled Mark McGowan and and the not that smart, absolutely crazy extremist. Which <sighs> Albanese is an extremist. That's another meme that's got to go too. Josh Taylor at the Guardian noted that uh, the Australian today depicts Dutton as Lurch in a cartoon uh, from the Adams family saying, I guess if the reference is a bit more dated, it's fine. One of the other um, one of the other interesting articles about uh, the journalism of the campaign that I've linked to is by Dennis uh, Mueller, who's a senior research fellow at the University of Melbourne, their Centre for Advancing Journalism. Headline, How the Reality Distorting Machinery of the Federal Government Campaign Delivered Subpar Journalism. Now, he says the nightly television news coverage was among the most juvenile and uninformative in 50 years. And given that about 61% of Australians uh, get their news from TV, this, this, this kind of matters. He says, quote, the pattern was set early on, unimaginative, slavish PR stunt footage of the leaders combined with young go-getters in the travelling media packs trying to make a name for themselves with gotcha questions. One of the reasons these young folk are on the bus uh, is that some years ago it was figured out that being on the bus with the party apparatchiks and campaign managers was a waste of time for the more senior journalists. They should stay uh, back in Canberra, back in the studios. Um, you know, we're getting these increasingly absurd uh, secrets about where the, the campaign bus is going. And Mueller writes, as a result, journalists and camera crews have become hostage to the party machines, news takers rather than news makers. Now, I, I agree with Dennis Muller in that the campaign bus experience has become largely pointless. You're going from one kind of predefined uh, photo opportunity to another, very little chance to ask meaningful questions when they're shouted over the top of a bulldozer. But the media aren't hostage to this. They don't have to go at all. They could... Send one person, send a pool journalist on the bus, send one camera crew. That's all you need. Because if you're not going to get any questions out, so what? It's just another fucking politician in a high-vis jacket. No, no, journalists aren't hostage to anyone. Sometimes I wish they were. Anyway, have a look at some of those pieces that... It will be very interesting indeed to see whether there is any actual change in the reporting of politics, and especially election campaigns. Things are very different now 
with a much more balanced parliament. I don't think we know yet whether it's a majority Labor government or minority. It doesn't really matter. Either way, journalism's got to change. Bet it doesn't happen. Harry Potter, for fuck's sake. Get it. Read it. Read another book. As I said, this is the last of the uh, election unhinging mini-series. Uh, but there are two more episodes coming up in the autumn series of The Edict, and they're coming up in the next three days. First, there'll be Space News with Rami Mandel, who's uh, the founder of SpaceAustralia.com and an astrophysicist. If you want to get trigger words or a conversation topic, because you're a supporter and you have paid for those things, uh, into that episode, you will have to be quick. I will need to know by 6pm tonight, the 26th of May, that's, that's possibly already happened because you're in the future and I'm... I am in your past now, so so be quick. Uh, so space that that episode. Uh, we're recording Friday. It'll be out on Saturday, and then cryptocurrency is collapsing. NFTs are co- uh, collapsing. You've probably seen the news. So David Gerard is coming back on, author of Attack of the Sixty Foot Blockchain and Libra Shrugged. Uh, we're recording that one Saturday night, Adelaide time. Uh, Adelaide time, Australian time. I haven't, I haven't lived in Adelaide for decades. Good heavens. Um, and that will be out on Sunday. But if you want to get trigger words in by that, I'll need them quick smart. Friday night, maybe Saturday night. Just, just send them in. Anyway, this episode uh, in particular, thanks to Carletta Albionak and Simon Harris, uh, who are both regular supporters. Thank you very much for your tips. And I want to thank all the people who pledged their support too. The 9pm Winter Series 2022, my current crowdfunding campaign, which ends in just a few hours. If you want more special guest episodes, and we've locked in at least four, no, at least six, because we passed target two uh, yesterday. See if we can get uh, past Target 3 and get a Public House Forum episode. There hasn't been one since 2018. I should stop talking. You press pause. Well, wait, wait, wait till I've told you the address to go to and then press pause and do it. So go to the 9pmedict.com slash winter2022. That's the 9pmedict.com slash winter2022. Got that in your head? Go there. Press pause while you do the needful. Thank you. And welcome back. I've already told you about some of the the, the people coming up in that winter series, so uh, let's get back to the election unhinging. If you've just joined this miniseries, if this is the very first episode of The Edict you've listened to, uh, Welcome. This must all be a bit confusing for you. Uh, the election miniseries is not normally how it goes, but one thing I have been doing is uh, measuring things with the hingeometer, the uh, totally non-existent device which uh, can measure how unhinged things have been getting. Now, last week, we ended up with a final hingeometer score of plus 45 points of unhinging in the lead-up to voting day. 
uh, which was the highest it had been. Now, some of those those things are still a bit unhinged. Some have gone. Uh, some have uh, only faded a bit. So by my calculations, we begin this week's segment uh, with a, a score reset to plus 29 points. Uh, you will not be seeing my working out. That's just the number that it is, and you will have to deal with it. So let's look uh, at what's been happening this week. Well, first up, uh, over at Sky News, obviously they have uh, not been handling uh, the election result very well at all. Uh, here is here is a brief bit of Peter Credlin, who, as you will recall, was Tony Abbott's chief of staff. The idea that he's going to take off to Japan on Tuesday and leave us Richard Miles in charge as acting prime minister, but worse than that... He doesn't even get to choose his cabinet. In come the factional warlords, mm. faces most uh, voters wouldn't even know. They'll carve up his cabinet. I mean, this is Biden-esque, a leader in name only, isn't it? Isn't it? Is it? You tell me. Well, of course, uh, you've got to tell the panellists what they're expected to say. Then again, it is Sky News. We know what uh, they're going to say. And, of course, uh, Radio 2 GB's Chris Smith did not disappoint with his answer. A, a glimmer of Labor craziness in the first week if, of course, they get into power. Now, I could imagine Penny Wong would be insistent, like Penny Wong can be insistent, that she should go over to the quad. I kind of get that. But to have Anthony Albanese in the stage of trans... Yeah, exactly. But in, in the stage of transitioning from a government to another government, probably, and he's not on the planet. Like, I know he was an, he's an economic dunce. We've proved that over the past five and a half weeks. But I, <laughs> this is like going to Hawaii on steroids, Peter. Like, seriously, the first week? And he has nothing to do at all with the factions. He can't tell the factions who he thinks should be deputy prime prime minister or or, or should be the or should be the defence minister. Nothing at all. Mm. Gee, I can't. I I don't get this at all. I don't get this at all. Now remember that, kids. I don't get this at all. Is a statement about the speaker's ability to understand something. So no, I don't get it. Well, who cares if you don't get it? Some of the things in that, not even on the planet. Apparently, this aircraft going to Japan. I don't know which planet it's meant to be on. And this idea that um, that Anthony Albanese can't talk to the factional warlords, that's a, that's a phrase that's got to die. It's such an ancient cliche. He's sitting in an aircraft specifically designed for the Prime Minister of Australia to stay in communications with the world from. It's, it's stacked full of comm gear. And even then, like a phone. He have these people on Sky News not ever heard of of the phone? You can just phone people from the plane. And Penny Wong could be demanding. How how dare Penny Wong be demanding the new foreign minister wanting to go to an important foreign meeting? How dare she? I mean, she's a woman, right? Good heavens, what rights does she have to demand things? And again, the idea that that the Prime Minister has to physically be here for, for things to happen. Now, the comparison they made with Hawaii is amusing because in Hawaii, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, as he was then, did not take 
an Air Force jet with him with all the comms gear. He was sitting on a fucking beach drinking cocktails and doing stupid selfies, selfies with, with blokes. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm outraged, obviously. I'm spitting. I'm stumbling over my words. If the country can't continue for a few hours when the Prime Minister is on an aircraft, even though it's fitted with comms gear, then they're not very a very good Prime Minister, are they? You know, it's all about delegation. It's all you know. The country can run quite nicely without the prime minister for a few hours. The PM does not need to be here to turn the hamster wheel. Yes, I'm alluding to that. I'm not going to play the clip. Plus three points for that whole. He's jetting off to Japan, and I'm going to give another one to Andrew Proben on Breakfast News on the ABC, who said. Albanese has spent more time as PM in Japan than Australia at one point. Yet day, day fucking one, he hasn't passed any legislation either. There hasn't even been parliament. This, this, oh, this, this is just all very stupid and my glimmer of hope is fading. Anyway, plus one for that. Uh, Zed Cecilia, uh, who is a liberal candidate in Canberra, he uh, he gave an election night speech. He banned the media from covering it, even though it's his official plus one for that. I don't need to spend any more time on that. And plus one to Scott Morrison, who has uh, refused to speak to former Liberal MP Fiona Martin. Uh, she lost her seat Saturday night. Scott Morrison has phoned most of the uh, Liberal members who lost their seats on Saturday night. Uh, but Dr Martin knows she's in the deep freeze uh, since she lost the seat of Reid uh, because, of course, she'd previously uh, differed publicly with Scott Morrison on things. Uh, apparently, uh, colleagues, Liberal colleagues, have described the move as graceless. I described the move as uh, just typical Scott Morrison being a cunt. I mean, one point, one point of unhingedness for that because it's really uh, pretty standard for Scott Morrison. The big one here, I think, though, is this idea that because the Liberal Party lost government to a series of people who were in favour of climate change and other woke lefty things, that the party should move to the right to win back the votes of the people who voted for candidates more centrist. The Sky After Dark regulars have been uh, going on about that at some length. Uh, They say that the party needs to uh, appeal to conservative values that Labor has abandoned. Some, I, I, I don't understand this. Look, some of this... I'm intrigued by the lineup for their their sulk fest on Sunday night, a two-hour Paul Murray live with Paul Murray, Andrew Bolt, Corey Bernardi, Bronwyn Bishop, Linda Scott, John Anderson, Michael Kroger, Senator Jim Nolan, another new senator, Jacinta Price, Tina McQueen, Sophie Allsworth from News, and more. Just this stack of far-right commentators um, having a big sook about it. But according to... What a lineup! What a lineup! But according to uh, um, Ms Mead, what's her first name? Guardians Mead writer? You know who I mean. 
Anyway, she says it was Andrew Bolt, the Herald Sun's star columnist and Sky News host, who reacted with visceral anger. This is from Bolt's blog. Scott Morrison's pathetic liberals got smashed by telling the world they were the guilty party. Guilty on the climate emergency, guilty of being mean to women, guilty on reconciliation. Who'd vote for such a mewling pack of self-haters with so little self-respect that they won't even sack a party traitor like Malcolm Turnbull? Thank God this election wipeout has taken out many of their worst grovellers. Please, Peter Dutton, take over and make the Liberals stop apologising for not being more like Labor. Let the Liberals be Liberals again. But still I see some of the more clueless Liberal survivors crawl from the wreckage and whimper that they've got to swing even more to the left. Scott Morrison's government was notable for its left-wing views, wasn't it? Plus three for all of those people, including Andrew Bolt so far. Prue McSween. I mean, all these people. Prue McSween. She tweeted, and I quote, All you indulgent Chardonnay socialists and teal princesses have abandoned the hard workers who have ambition and haven't inherited a comfortable life. You can all enjoy your feelings of superiority while the real Aussies build their wealth through hard work supported by Liberal Australia. Plus two points for hero of the workers' revolution, Prue McSween. Paul Mc... Uh, Paul Murray. Paul Murray. Look, I'll, I'll just play 50 seconds of Paul Murray. I'm not going to pretend that the Labor Party won just and there's some sort of magical asterisk beside it. I'll get into how the Greens helped them in a second. Australia has spoken. They spoke loudly and it's time to understand what they particularly said. I'm also... Not going to pretend that everything I said for the past six weeks as a warning about what's going to happen in the next three years, I stand by all of it. But there's no point being a sook. You take it on the chin. It is what it is. But if anyone thinks that that means that you're not allowed to criticise the new regime, well, I've got some news for you. Because my fellow Australians, welcome to the first meeting of the new resistance. It's here each and every night at 8 o'clock. It gets stronger by the day, by the hour, and you are part of that. In the middle of that little spray, very measured, I do like the photos of Paul Murray from election night where he's, he's almost in tears. I mean, I know schadenfreude is an ugly emotion and, and reaction, as I said, but oh, fuck him. Anyway, while he was uh, in that spray, there was a, a slide on, on screen, a graphic on screen of Sky News. The resistance starts now. Last line of defence for common sense. 1,000 days to take the country back from the mad left. Australia, the mad left resistance starts now. Plus three points for Paul Murray. And his stable mate, and I go, stables? Don't horses live in stables? Yes, all sorts of other creatures too. His stable mate, Rowan Dean, kicked off as well. When you shed your party's convictions, principles and values, toss them out the window. Now we are faced with three years of hardcore left-wing government that will destroy the fabric of this nation. We will see our living standards crushed, our livelihoods damaged, our cultural institutions devastated, our kids' future prosperity decimated because 
despite every warning we gave you. Scott Morrison and the bedwetters betrayed their conservative base, and then they all lost their seats. Talk about instant karma. But there is a silver lining to this cloud. The Liberal Party under Peter Dutton has the chance to be a true conservative mainstream party now that all the bedwetters have gone. Personally, I can't wait for, mm, check my diary, early 2025, put it in your diary too. Donald Trump will be sworn in as the next US president or Ron DeSantis, and a few weeks later, Peter Dutton and the Liberals will be swept into power in Australia following three disastrous and incompetent years of a Teals-led Labor government where Parliament obsesses over woke identity politics, climate and Indigenous issues as the economy grinds to a halt under their watch. It's going to be a long three years. It sure is. But 2025, mark it in your diary. Dutton, Trump, the Liberals will be back. Yeah, I don't know about that, Mr. Rowan Dean, but, you know. Plus one point to you. Uh, I mean, I, it was pretty unhinged, but then Rowan Dean is always pretty unhinged. I, I, I think I just want to acknowledge the linkage of this all would trump somehow with one point. Michelle Grattan's got a lovely piece uh, in the conversation. Well, lovely. Uh, saying that Peter Dutton, who, as we all know by now, is more than likely to be the next Liberal leader, he's declared there's more to him than his tough side. Uh, he's set to be unopposed. Uh, he included with his statement a, a testament from his wife, Kiralee, who described him as compassionate and witty, saying he hid a lot of his emotion from the public. Kiralee Dutton said her husband was an amazing father and the kids adore him. He has a great sense of humour, very dry and witty, but he also has an incredible compassion, particularly when it comes to the protection of women and children, unless they're brown. I, I'm saying that, not Kiralee Dutton. There's a lot of this, oh, but that's not the real me. Now you'll see, all the, see the real me. I think we've seen Dutton's real side already. He's been in Parliament a while. I'm, I'm getting a bit sick of this. This, Oh, but I'm, I'm not the person you see. Yes, we are. We see your acts. You did boycott the apology to the stolen generation and then say that that was the right thing for you to do. Um, you, you did... Uh, rule over for some time a regime of locking up asylum seekers for, for no reason for years at a time. You know, that's not compassion. That, that again, is, is, is all bullshit. There was a thought, with some photos kicking around of Peter Dutton, you know, with the lighting such that what you really see is this potato-shaped head of his. And I'd, we shouldn't make fun of people for their appearance, but fuck it, it's Dutton. And some of these photos, you know, it looks like the head is disembodied and I think someone should should build a hot air balloon in the shape of Peter Dutton's head. And a bit like Sky Whale. But also a bit like if you've ever seen the movie Zardoz, there's the big stone head that floats across the landscape. Instead of calling it Zardoz, you could call it Taitos, Taitos or something. 
Um, where where was I? Oh, I was just commenting about that piece. Um, to summarise all of that, Amy Ramikas in The Guardian tweeted, of all the takes, my favourite is Australia voted for more progressive candidates because the coalition government was too progressive and therefore the answer for the coalition is to go further to the right to win back the Australian people. Galaxy-level stuff, says Amy. More please. Yes, more please of that. Plus five for the idea that to win back the progressives, you need to move further to the right. I what? I'm going to do something unusual now. I'm going to talk about the national, the nationals, the national party. That's not unusual in and of itself. But have a think about this. The nationals are likely to have a leadership spill. Apparently, a, a number of nationals MPs are furious when Barnaby Joyce signalled that. Uh, the party could abandon its support for net zero carbon emissions. Um, the previous national leader, uh, Michael McCormick, I had to think for a while what his name was. He was such a, a kind of zero. Anyway, he's not ruled out another go at the job. David Littleproud is uh, possibly going to have a go, and he's been one of the, the strongest internal supporters in the National Party to address climate change. Um and and they've said that you know Matt Canavan, he of the coal face, you know the the blacking up with a bit of coal dust to make him look a bit more workerish. Uh, Matt Canavan is declaring that net zero was dead. Well, uh, Little Proud reckons no, that's part of what caused us problems in regional contests. Uh, so maybe the net zero policy is not dead. And indeed, uh, the Weekly Times, which is a Murdoch-owned uh, regional newspaper, it's it's sometimes called the Bible of the Bush, well, possibly by themselves, um, it, it rebuked, rebuked Barnaby Joyce's uh, post-election blurb about maybe, uh, you know, I'll ab- abandon the net zero concept. Uh, th- this uh, rural newspaper is uh, urging him and the National Party to say, yes, climate change is real. It will affect all parts of the country. Um, you need to do something about it. Tony Windsor, who you... I'll, I'll get to my point about the Nationals in a minute. Tony Windsor, who was one of the independents that uh, enabled Julia Gillard to become Prime Minister in her minority government... She, uh, he said, Tony Windsor said, the Nationals have changed tack. Their sole purpose under people like John Anderson, God, we're going back a few years when John Anderson was the Nationals leader, their purpose then was to keep the Liberals in government and pick up some crumbs. Or with Jabarnaby Joyce, their sole purpose is to keep the Liberals out of government and pick up zilch. He described the Nationals as a dipstick looking for a sump. Now, that's a fabulous line, and he's absolutely right about the Nationals, but if the Nationals are not going to support the Liberals quite as cleanly in things like net zero and whatever, well, I'm going to give them a point back because the Nationals are thinking about these issues. That's minus one unhinging point for the Nationals more broadly this week. I I know, I know, this is radical, but, but wait... Listen to what Barnaby Joyce said the other day. 
Is the prospect that you could suggest that there is a split in the coalition? I know you've been asked no, this before. I, I'd, pref I'd prefer there wasn't, but at this point in time, there is not a coalition that would be negotiated. It's one of the big jobs ahead of us to negotiate the coalition, negotiate ministries, negotiate sort of the guardrails of policy, negotiate um, you know resources. These are the this is the big task that's imminently before us. And, uh, you know, that's what I'll be focused on, to make sure the Nationals get the best deal they possibly can. And do you think the Nationals deserve more, given what you've said is, um, you know, a very successful campaign? Well, obviously, we are a greater proportion, uh, but if there was a coalition, if there is a coalition, we're a greater proportion of that coalition. So that's also beyond dispute. So more front bench positions? Well, you're asking an obvious question. Mathematically, yes. Wow. There is no coalition at the moment. Now, it is a thing whereby after each election, uh, the Liberal Party and the National Party renegotiate their coalition agreement. But this is a coalition that, that goes back decades. And for Barnaby to just say there, no, nah, it's not a thing currently, I think, again, that that is actually quite a rational move. So I'm going to deduct another two unhinging points. I am, I am, and I and I have. But don't worry, there's plenty more unhinging for me to wrap up with. For a start, there's there's all of the ludicrous Twitter warriors of of the left. I hate saying that because it's such a cliche. People like Belinda Jones, sixty eight, who tweeted. I haven't heard anyone celebrating Twitterverse for their small part in changing history in Australia. We're a formidable force, one of many. We work together. We don't take shit. We will continue to construct and implement new ways to break down barriers and attract votes. Now, you know, you just spend your nights tweeting shit. Plus three points to Belinda Jones and, and her ilk. And Christopher Jones, uh, uh, Christopher Owen, rather, noted it's hilarious watching mad fucking witches still continue with their rancid takes and non sequiturs. This is, this is what MFW uh, tweeted on the 25th, and I quote, it's hilarious watching so-called progressives who've attacked Labor at every possible opportunity during the election campaign now demand Labor do exactly what they want policy-wise or else. Who the fuck do they think they are? Who the fuck do you think you are? And who the, who the fuck do they think they are? Well, they're citizens sending a message to the newly elected government. Fuck off. Plus three to you. That put that one tweet. Plus three. I am getting a bit shouty now. Those people are just insane. Catherine Deves uh, did not win the seat of Warringah. She, she, the transphobe and general obnoxious bigot who the Liberals decided to put up as one of Scott Morrison's captain's picks. She. Uh, yeah, she was quite soundly defeated, but then went on to Sky News to say this. Will you run again? Will you stay and fight? I would like to say to my detractors that when they thought I could not withstand the storm, that I am the storm. 
Wow, I am the storm. Ned Balm on Twitter noted uh, that Deves avoided questions for weeks, which he did, and then immediately after losing goes on a panel show that showers her in false praise, not exactly storm chasing. No, it is not, Ned. It is not. And on Twitter also, Bookshop Addict said, a 4.7% swing against her means that Deves is more of a windbag than a storm. Ha! Take that, Catherine Deves. Just one point for that unhinging because it's, I am the storm. Yeah, as long as, as long as no press conference is involved. Okay, let's add that up. We started with plus 29 points today. Round that up mostly to... I added it up earlier. This is all just me acting. It's good, isn't it? Plus 53 unhinging points. That's the highest the hingeometer has ever been in its <laughs> seven weeks of existence. Plus 53 points of unhinging, and my prediction is the unhinging is going to continue for for a few weeks. Uh, whether I continue using the unhinge uh, the hingeometer or not, I don't know. It's just it was a fun election thing. We'll see. We see how, how we go. Time for a change of subject. I think. Today I would like to take you from Australia to the United States and would like to take you to the, the state of Georgia. I don't know whether that's how they say Georgia in Georgia. Georgia, anyway. And uh, Candice Taylor. Candice is spelt C-A-N-D-I-S-S, Taylor, uh, because, of course, she's running for governor. Have a listen to this and guess which party. We're not making backroom deals with sheriffs. They're the highest constitutional officer in their county, and they're going to do the will of the people. I don't mind handcuffing them either. So, I mean it. I've heard it from sheriff corruption all over the state. We've got some awesome sheriffs, and praise the Lord for them. Pray for them. Even if you have a corrupt one, pray for them. And pray that they're replaced really quickly if they're corrupt. But I don't care. I don't mind handcuffing any single person who does who breaks the law and goes against our government. The Constitution says when you commit treason, it's death by firing squad. I didn't write it. It's in there. It's serious. When you swear to God to uphold a document that says you'll do the will of the people and you will honor every single thing in that Constitution, you do that. Have you guessed which party she's running for yet? What about if I tell you that her campaign bus has the slogan, Jesus, Guns, Babies? Yes, she's the Republican candidate for Governor of Georgia. Would you like to hear uh, a little more from her, from Candace Taylor? Of course you would. We are not ashamed. We're going to do a political rally and we're going to honour Jesus. We're going to say his name. We're not going to compromise. We're going to have Pastor Todd Coconado that came up here and delivered an awesome word. And we're not going to be ashamed. And they're not going to tell us separation of church and state. We are the church. And we run the state. 
The church as a business doesn't get to monetarily control the government. I will never let that happen. There will no church in Georgia monetarily control the government. But we are the church, friends. It's us. We are the church. And it says of, by, and for the people. The church runs the state of Georgia. This state is sovereign. This is our state. We decide what happens. We decide if we kill babies. We decide if we kill babies. I shouldn't joke about this uh, in the week when there's been yet another mass shooting in the United States. It's a week with a Y in it. Wait, a day with a K in it. You know what I mean. And they wonder why it happens. A few final thoughts before I I go. I did start this episode um, talking about the uh, the hope and and the looking out to the world and reaching out to the world implied uh, both by the photograph I described and and of course by the actions of Anthony Albanese and and Penny Wong in in the first few days of, of the new government. We have noticed that China is sending um, a, a very senior person indeed to tour around uh, the Pacific Island nations at the moment. Uh, Senator Wong, as foreign minister, will be heading out in a, a couple of days, I think. It's very soon as well. And I wanted to play just this, this brief clip from uh, Anthony Albanese this morning on, uh, on, on, on the ABC television we know that this has been building for some time. Uh, the, uh, the, the Chinese Foreign Minister's visit uh, to a range of countries uh, after the agreement that was signed by the Solomons, uh, Australia dropped the ball. We can't afford to do that. Uh, we need to uh, re-engage with the region. Uh, they're sovereign nations, of course, uh, and we need to respect that. Uh, but we need to be offering more support and uh, otherwise... Uh, we can see the consequences uh, with the deal that was done with the Solomons. We know that China sees that as the first of many, uh, which is the context of their foreign minister's visit to the region. Uh, the region. He means the region. The ABC cut off the audio very badly there. That's not my fault. So, yeah, it it looks like we are going to have a much more outward-looking and outward-engaging and more cooperative Australia. But we will see. There's a lot going to happen in the next few days. There's a lot going to happen in the next few weeks. Osman Chu, uh, who is uh, well, a member of the Labor left wing, he, he writes about things, he's an, an analyst. He's written a, an interesting article uh, in the Tribune, very similar article uh, in the Jacobean. I'm going to read a bit from the Jacobean. I've linked to both of them, but they, they cover much the same territory. He writes that after Morrison's unexpected narrow win in 2019, um, there were parallels with uh, John Howard's time as Prime Minister. He was a Conservative, of course, but he won then four elections in a row and there were then fears of long-term Conservative dominance. Well, fears on the left, obviously, the Conservative side of politics didn't mind. 
But instead of, of that, instead of Morrison leading off a long-term conservative government, there were three years, uh, as Osman says here, three years of aimlessness exposed by the federal government's pandemic response failures, failed attempts at culture, warring and sheer ineptitude. With Morrison's popularity cratering, the election became a referendum on the Prime Minister and it delivered the biggest conservative defeat since World War II. He says, though, for those on the left and progressive civil society in Australia, it'll be important to try and create conditions for a more confident and ambitious government. Unlike 2007, remember Kevin 07 taking over after John Howard? There's no public optimism or fanfare that greeted Labor's win. I think he's right. It, it, it is a much more cautious, there, there isn't a triumphant, yes, Kevin 07, hurrah, hurrah. It's more, yes, ding dong, the, the wicked witch is dead, but there's now a pause. I'll let you read the rest of it for yourself. But he does say, I'll read the last, the last bit. Prioritising a handful of ambitious policies that make a tangible material difference to lives, building a large groundswell of public support, and working across parties will be necessary. The energy, fundraising, volunteer turnout, and community organising of the teal independence shows it's possible to tap into a desire for change. I agree. The alternative, says Osmond, is another wasted decade of political impotence as the climate crisis only worsens and erodes faith in the ability of government to change lives that lets the coalition rebound. With all that is at stake, those on the left can't rest yet. You know, I, I'm ending sort of with that kind of warning. You know I can't end on a hopeful note. It is just impossible for me to end on a hopeful note. I want to quote Peter Davidson. He's a social and economic policy analyst at ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services. He was watching ABC's 7.30 on Tuesday night and said, here we go again, sales to Jim Chalmers, the new treasurer, do you support the Henry Report's proposed shift from taxing income to taxing consumption? The answer was no. Good, let's move on then. Like, no exploration of tax reform. Uh, uh, but more, more importantly, I think, by the way, the Henry Report didn't recommend this. <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. I kind of feel good about it all kind of feel tired after the last however many years it's been. We need to see some signs that it's happening, eh? Yeah, we do. That's all the edict for now. If you're quick, go to the 9pmedict.com slash winter2022 and pledge your support. You've still got a couple of hours. If not, go to that slash tip and do the needful. The next episode of this podcast will be on Saturday and then there's another one on Sunday. Until then, I'm still Gary and wash your hands.
The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.